Welcome to A Day in the Life, a monthly podcast from the School Government Center for Public Leadership and Governance at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our faculty offer advice for new and veteran officials to help them navigate the potholes of public office. In this series, we talk about the daily trials and tribulations of local elected officials. In this episode, Patrice Rossler, Manager of Elected Official Programming, discusses what local elected officials can do to help create innovative local government workplaces. She is joined by faculty member Leisha DeHart-Davis, Director of the Local Government Workplaces Initiative. Your town hall or county courthouse can easily be the only place where citizens experience firsthand their tax money at work. Local government employees are quite often the face of government to many of our citizens. Whether it's the animal control officer who gets the cat out of your attic or the deputy who answers a family disturbance call, your employees tell a story about careers in local government. What story do your employees tell about working for your municipality or county? How would they describe their workplace culture? Do you think they feel valued and respected? Are they proud to work for local government? While many local elected officials talk about improving government productivity and truly want high-performing teams with low turnover, what actions can they take to help achieve these outcomes? The School of Government's Local Government Workplaces Initiative helps cities and counties learn how to create effective, high-performing workplaces through its research on public organizational dynamics and behaviors. In this episode of A Day in the Life, we're talking with Leisha DeHart-Davis, Professor of Public Administration and Director of the Local Government Workplaces Initiative, about their research and how local elected officials can influence productivity and effectiveness in the workplace. Leisha, tell us about the Local Government Workplaces Initiative. What started you down this path? So I was an assistant professor at the University of Kansas back in 2004, and I needed data for publishing so that I could get tenure. And uh, so I started to work with local governments doing it initially for free um, and really enjoyed it. And so uh, fast forward to 2012 when I joined the UNC School of Government, and um, I found that cities and counties take organizational development very seriously, but there was a need there for research, teaching, and public service around organizational development. So I started the Workplaces Initiative in 2014 to provide to uh, North Carolina local governments not only organizational development research, but also teaching and public service. So when you when you look at your data, what are some of the organizational strengths you see in local governments? So we have a fair amount of um, data, you know, going back to 2004, and we have detected some pronounced patterns. So in terms of the strengths, what we see are that um, local government organizations offer great jobs. The jobs are very meaningful where local government employees get to see the effects of their work on the quality of life of citizens or res- and residents in a community. Um, another um, strength of local governments is that employees are highly engaged. And I think they're highly engaged in part because these are great jobs and they're meaningful jobs. So where you may see other levels of government have lower levels of engagement, and you see that revealed through employee surveys. That's not the true. With, that's not true with local government employees. I've heard so many local government employees say that they really appreciate being able to 
uh, to see the results of their work. Um, they like being able to help that person that they see coming in their door. It's, it's really personal to them. Absolutely. And, you know, that's an asset for local government organizations. It sure is. To have employees who feel that way about their work. Are there weaknesses that you see in, in the local government as a workplace for a career? So we do see some weaknesses, and, and this, um, these weaknesses tend to surface across local governments. It's pretty rare that local governments don't have these issues. And the first one is there's a lot of centralization. So what centralization means is that you've got to ask permission and go through layers sometimes to do really simple things. So it's hierarchical? It's very, very hierarchical. Yeah. And the problem with centralization and hierarchy is, first of all, it's inefficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unless you really needed... Um, layers of approval for a significant decision, then you're you're going above the level of control that's needed. So it's inefficient and it's also demoralizing. I mean, who wants to ask permission to do basic things? Um, a second weakness is a lack of employee voice. So it's not uncommon to see local governments who really don't have a formalized way of soliciting employee voice. And the problem with that is that employees are the closest to the work. Sometimes they're experts in the area in which decisions are being made. And so that's another um, weakness that we see across local government is this lack of employee voice. If a unit of local government wanted to become the career of choice, the place where people really want to work, what would be some of the strategies that they could employ to make that their objective if they want to be known as the place where people really want to work? I think they have to do two things. Um, And the first thing is they have to take a look at pay. Pay is just a necessary condition for a a high-performing workforce. And it doesn't necessarily have to be 20% above market. But managers of local government organizations need to be looking at what the market rate is for different jobs and striving to pay those wages. Now, sometimes that can be difficult to do whenever the um, economy takes a downturn or you get very, very fiscally conservative council members. And so in that case, what local governments need to do is to create great workplaces, right? And so they have to do everything possible to make sure that employees um, feel valued and feel a sense of belonging and have supervisors who are effective at coaching and giving good feedback. So there's a whole host of things that local governments can do to create great workplaces in addition to paying attention to pay. So you think even if they have uh, problems with being competitive in their salary scales, there are some non-salary things that they can do that will offset that lack of competition? They absolutely can use great workplace strategies to offset their inability to pay what they would like to pay. Having said that, however, that is never a reason not to pay people for what they're worth. Sometimes there are reasons that you can't pay people for what they're worth. But if there's not a compelling reason for that, the local government should be paying their employees at market value. Of all the things you've learned from your research, Leisha, what do you think is the most important thing for the elected officials to know? I think elected officials need to realize, and I know a lot of your listeners will already know this, but for some some that may not have thought about this, Local government employees watch very carefully what 
elected officials say and do. And they they listen to those comments and interpret those comments as a signal of their value and worth to that elected body. So to give you an example, if there is a, um, uh, a council session where the, the council is working on the budget and a budget's been proposed where there are employee pay freezes, if the council does not take the time to think through the effects on employees and show that they are concerned about the effects of pay freezes on employees, that will demoralize the workforce. Of course it would. And demoralizing the workforce absolutely translates into public goods and services. It seems to me like the elected officials would have a really good opportunity to to do what I call model the way, so that if you really want your employees to feel like they're valued and trusted to the citizens, that you have to treat them that way yourself. Absolutely. You know, elected officials are stewards of the resource that is that workforce. And so that stewardship mentality should pervade all interactions that an elected official has, not only with staff, but with citizens. Your workforce is your most important asset. Absolutely it is. What's the most rich, most interesting research finding that you've had? There's a myth that local government employees don't care about pay or shouldn't care about pay. And we find out, wow, do local government employees care about pay? Because we see whenever there are pay issues in a local government, we see um, the uh, concern over that issues correlate with things like lower job satisfaction, less organizational commitment, less identification with the organization. So that's been kind of surprising because I guess I went into this decade ago thinking, okay, well, you know, local government employees are going to understand about pay in the public sector. But that's actually not even remotely true. So um, pay issues have a profound effect on productivity, morale, turnover intention. And one thing that I have observed, Leisha, in the past is that uh, there are private sector positions that are comparable to a lot of the positions in public agencies. And so if your local government unit itself isn't competitive or a friendly workplace or, or listening to the employees, there might be opportunities that would pay you more in the private sector that are nearby, and it's just going to cause more turnover. Absolutely. And there we, we have cities all over the state that compete with nearby jurisdictions who pay better. And so that's just a logical consequence of not paying market rate. So, Alicia, what opportunities do local governments have to create great workplaces? You know, there are two opportunities for creating great workplaces that really come out of the challenges that local governments face kind of across the board. You know, we talked about how um, local government organizations tend to be very centralized and hierarchical. So one thing to do is to decentralize decision making. And what that means is to think on workplace decisions and processes where they should involve a minimum number of people. So does this, um, does the requirement to obtain travel approval really require three signatures or we can, can we cut that down to one? 
A second strategy is to empower employees to make decisions. And this is all about giving employees discretion. And of course, with discretion comes responsibility. And local governments can train employees on how to use good discretion. But the way that this would work is, for example, you could identify decisions like, I worked with one local government where um, employees talked about having to ask permission to um, choose the color of paint for patching up a a baseboard, right? That's a small, small item, right? And so you should really trust your employees to to make decisions. The worst is going to happen is if it doesn't match, you go back over it. It's not that big of a deal. So identifying... um, So identifying those types of decisions. Um, Another thing is to give employees voice. And so uh, this is all about um, training supervisors to be receptive to employee feedback, right? And also to learn to solicit that feedback. There's some research out there that suggests that whenever supervisors are not necessarily secure in their own positions, that they're less likely to want employee voice because it, it, it raises questions for them in their own minds of them, you know, am I really able to do this job? So I've heard you talk before about employee silence. Yes. Is this what you're getting at with this employee voice? Yes, that's exactly right. So um, employee silence is whenever employees have something to say. They have an idea for improving things or they have an issue with a process that, that needs to be attended to, but they deliberately withhold that information because they are afraid of retribution or uh, they don't think it'll do any good because they've raised issues in the past and nobody listened to them. So local government organizations can put in place these voice processes for overcoming silence. So you're describing the affirmative act of being silent. Right actually consciously deciding not to speak. That's exactly right. And things that will make an employee get to that point where they choose not to offer these suggestions. That's exactly right. And so whenever you put into place a a formalized mechanism for employee voice, you will reduce that silence because you're sending a signal to employees, hey, what you have to say is important to me, and I value your perspective. Now, whenever you do that, what you have to do is to commit to a process, right? And so let's say that I work for you and I come to you with an idea. Then your job as the manager in that local government is to say, or the supervisor in that local government is to say, I hear what you're saying. Uh, let's take two weeks to think about this. I've got an upcoming management meeting where I'm going to float this idea out, and I'm going to get back to you by mid-September. So it seems to me like the training is not just on the employee for being able to uh, get past that hesitancy to put their voice in the room, but also for the supervisors in how to react to the tra- to the suggestions that the employees are giving. That's exactly right. Supervisors aren't born knowing how to solicit employee voice. So it's or more to, than or to just manage putting it. in a suggestion box. That Well, yes, it's much more than a suggestion box. And in fact, suggestion boxes have their own pros and cons. Um, and a lot of cons, Mm -hmm. I have to say. But absolutely, this is about local governments putting into place a process for not only eliciting input from employees, but managing that input. So employees know that they've been heard, and they know that you're going to get back to them, and that they know that you may not take up their suggestion, but at least they'll know why. 
So does the Workplaces Initiative offer training for local governments on how to put in place some of these strategies? Absolutely. We have a session called uh, Encouraging and Managing Employee Voice. We've taught it around the state a few times, and we'll probably be bringing that back in the spring. That would be great to have posted on our website, Leisha. Please keep me informed when you get those dates set. Absolutely. Thank you. What happens next with your research, Leisha? What's the next step? So at the Local Government Workplaces Initiative, we are venturing into research and teaching around workplace stress, particularly for those local government employees who are working in high-stress occupations. So this would be um, social services, health services, um, law enforcement, fire, and particularly those occupations that have been affected by the opioid crisis. Mm. And so foster um, care, foster care, foster care, social workers. Absolutely. And so what we're going to be looking at is um, testing out some organizational interventions for um, alleviating workplace stress and the mental health issues that come with it, because the mental health issues that come with stress are very serious. They're profoundly effective. Yes. Um, those, those kinds of positions where you're really dealing with people who are in traumatic situations and you're making life changes by what you do every minute that you're on. Um, those are very stressful positions. So are there some examples of strategies that local governments can use to help reduce the stress level or manage the stress level? Well, that's what we're going to be looking into. In particular, we're going to be looking into things like supervisory support, hmm. you know, and because I've, I've heard from a fair number of first responders that sometimes supervisors don't necessarily understand what's happening in that moment with the first responders, even if they've been, maybe they, it's been a while since they've been in the field. And so when um, first responders that I have spoken with say that when um, that they need to be able to talk to somebody who knows what they're going through. And if there's been some time that's lapsed with that supervisor being in the field, then there's a gap there. So we're going to be testing out that intervention of, of supervisory support and looking at other things as well. We're also going to be doing some teaching around resiliency and coping. In fact, we've got... Um, the first week in November, we'll have three workshops around the state that uh, will be for not only for first responders, but for frontline employees like social workers and healthcare workers. And um, you can find more information about that on the Local Government Workplaces Initiative website. That sounds like an excellent idea, Alicia. I know that there are places in North Carolina where they've been so hit by the hurricanes in recent years, and all of the employees have uh, have been affected. Um, it starts, after a while, you start to feel like that stress level is normal. And if you've got a supervisor who's in that position and they think, well, this is just normal stress, then it could be very difficult for an employee to feel like they've got, that supervisor's got their ear. So I think having some workshops would be really helpful. We'll be sure to publish those for our listeners. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.